And I, and I think the one thing, people really underestimate the power of human, human intelligence tradecraft. I think they do that because it's difficult. It takes years to learn and understand and refine. It, it, it's harder, it's less fashionable. It's really, really useful if you can do it well. It's incredibly useful if you can do it well. Super valuable. Welcome back to the Web Chats podcast, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgway. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you if you have rated our podcast. Please do that. If you haven't, you can do that quite easily through the Spotify and Apple apps. Really helps us climb the rankings and push our conversations out to as many people as possible. And we think people would be interested to hear them. I've got another brilliant one for you today. James Wilkes is a friend of white and black and is a highly experienced troubleshooter in global shipping, marine and international trade. And he has been helping companies manage issues arising from corporate malfeasance, criminal activity, political instability, terrorism, and other really complex problems for over 25 years. And James founded his company, Grey Page, in 2003 and has headed the company ever since. Grey Page are a specialised investigations and intelligence consulting company and they provide knowledge, insight and advice to private and public sector clients around the world. And they work predominantly in the marine, aviation, energy and commodity sector, but they support clients in, in a diverse range of matters. And the work that they do is oftentimes incredibly confidential and secretive. And so James can't talk specifically about the cases and the clients uh, that he helps but we have a really in-depth and interesting conversation in this episode about how James built Grey Page from the ground up from scratch and has successfully run it ever since and we also have a really interesting deep dive into the nexus between AI and big data and tech in intelligence and security in the industry that James and Grey Page operate in and, and human intelligence and the place and the space for human intelligence still now in 2023. And James has very clear views on that and the importance of human intelligence and tradecraft going hand in hand with technical developments that we are seeing. So it's an incredibly fascinating insight and conversation for me from someone who, although he wouldn't say it himself, is really top of his game and runs an incredibly successful business doing what he's doing. So I started out by asking James how he founded Grey Page and how he built a business from the ground up. I get asked a lot, how do you end up doing what you do? How did you get into that? Wow. You know, how, how do you get into that? And I, so I've thought about it now for 26 years and I'm not sure I've ever given the same answer twice. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> the truth of it is, is that uh, I fell into it. I didn't plan it. I've never been a planner. Uh, I'm not one of those guys that, you, I, I suppose it happened probably when I was about to go to university. We started to get into um, careers advice where somebody would say, what's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in five years? And 
Fortunately, I don't think I was ever asked that at interview because I would probably have given some sort of answer that would have ruled me immediately out of the job, or I'd have probably just walked out of the interview for the, because I would have just thought, I'm I'm sure you've got something more interesting to ask me than where do I see myself in five years? Simply because HR have given you a list of questions, you know, to ask now because Harvard Business Review said these are the great questions to ask at interview. Um, but what happened? To me, I went to Wolverhampton Grammar School. I was born in Dudley in the black country, if you can't tell by my accent, uh, raised in Wolverhampton, went to the grammar school, and I followed that, um, the, 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 um, the process at the time, um, which was GCSEs, A-levels, university degree, job, in brackets, hope you get a job. Um, I wasn't driven. I didn't have an ambition to be a doctor, a lawyer, certainly didn't have an ambition to be an accountant, anything like that. That was not me. I just enjoyed or tried to enjoy myself as much as I could and figured you'd go through the process and then you'd find something to do. And and that was that. Um, And actually, I was not a really strong academic, very, very middling I mean, that's probably overstating it. I wasn't hugely enthused by academia. The grammar school was very academic and I was surrounded by lots of really bright people uh, and some not so interested either. I mean, you know, you had to be, you you got in there on academic merit, but whether you sustained it, I guess, as we grew up, went through our A-levels particularly, a lot of people just fell out of love with studying. I hadn't got any great ambition to do anything. And and then one day, I think we were doing our UCA forms and PCAS, as they were in those days, the university applications and polytechnics before they all became one type of institution. And I got a... Um, Uh, a prospectus from Liverpool Poly, as it was, Liverpool John Moores University, as it became while I was there Mm -hmm. and now is. If I use those interchangeably, because I still haven't gotten over the fact that I went to a poly and and graduated from a uni. Um, So I'll just use them interchangeably. For our Um, younger listeners. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got this this prospectus from Maritime Studies, BSc in Maritime Studies, hadn't given it any thought, no thought about shipping. I had never heard of maritime studies. It basically said, you're probably not going to get another better degree offer uh, of what you might want to do if you, you know, you're coming from grammar school. Uh, if you're not going into all these other professions, then, hey, how about this? And I had a look at the prospectus and it looked pretty interesting. There's some really interesting subjects I'd never really thought about, but they really piqued my curiosity. It's everything from naval architecture, shipboard operations, uh, the business, the law of shipping, um, logistics, it, a whole the, the whole a whole range of things that I could yeah you know what that's really broad based um there could be something in there that I might fall in love with and I like broad based stuff right I I don't want to know about one thing and know everything about it I like knowing a, a little bit about lots of stuff and if I want to explore one thing in detail I can go into it later but I kind of like general curiosity mm-hmm. I have a general inquisitiveness about most things and on the back which is really clever that they did and this great marketing or whether they did it by accident or by design, they had this big page of all the jobs and professions and occupations and sectors 
that this degree could lead you into if you were interested, you know, everything from military, naval, radar, tech, ships, being at sea, being an accountant, being a lawyer, you know, everything. It was like there must have been maybe a hundred different potential jobs in there, right? Or occupations. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, all right, I get you. You you're leading me on a journey here. I thought, why not? Um, so I, I, I applied um and they offered me a d and an e so they said yeah we'll, we'll take you subject to you getting a d and e at a level and i thought well that's eminently reasonable it's quite possible i might get a d and an e at a level um and maybe i'm looking back with rose, rose tinted spectacles i thought well i could probably just enjoy the cricket season then sit my a levels and with a bit of luck i'll i'll i'll, uh, I'll get a d and an e and 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 and, and i'm in <laughs> so as it turned out, had a great cricket season, crushed my A-levels. <laughs> I got three Ds of the D. <laughs> and and uh, staying on the cricketing theme, I didn't even stay around to go pick up my A-level results. I went off on cricket tour. <laughs> my mum went to school, <laughs> got my A-level uh, results. I rang home, I rang home from the hotel. <laughs> she told me <laughs> I got three Ds in the D. I was into poly to read Job maritime done. studies, gave them a call. They said yes. And and that was it. I so I fortuitously or serendipitously or through laziness, I don't whatever, just just my general let's roll with it. I ended up doing a maritime degree at Liverpool, John Moores, and it was brilliant. It was a sandwich course as well. That was that was something that really interested me, right? It was have a year while you're at university, after your second year, academic year, you go out into industry, in the shipping world, in the maritime world, and then you come back, do your final year. Hopefully, while you're on your industrial placement, you'll find a subject that you might want to write a 10,000 word dissertation over. I thought, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool. So I did my degree. Um, I did. I actually went out to do my placement, um, my year in industry after my first academic year because they hadn't got enough second years wanting to do it. Yeah. I guess they just wanted to push on, graduate, and go. And um, I thought, yeah, I'll I'll do that. So I ended up um, working with a British ship owner um, based out of Hull called Whitaker Tankers, John H. Whitakers. They've never had a um, an undergraduate placement person before. I didn't know what I was doing. We had a great year. I learned a hell of a lot. I mean, it was real baptism of fire stuff. Just get stuck in. This is what we do. Get out on the ships, learn about shipping oil, learn about refueling other ships, because that's what we mostly did. Bunkering. It's called bunkering marine fuel when a smaller tanker goes alongside a bigger ship and delivers its fuel. A bit like pulling up at a petrol station, but the actual petrol station comes to you in, in bunkering in, in most times. Had a great year with them. But at the end of that year, um, I I, uh, I was in a car crash, big car smash, uh, what they call now life-changing injuries. Wow. Um, and so instead of going straight back to university and finishing up in four years, because it was a modular course, I missed the first term of the, of the second academic year, um, started the next term. I could only pick modules I could do in two terms. So I ended up doing like, I don't know, two thirds of my second year 
in my second academic year. Then I had to pick up all those other modules in my third academic year with as much as I could get done in my third academic year. And then my final academic year was just picking up my dissertation and a couple of modules that I hadn't been able to fit in. So I ended up five years on my degree instead of four. Mm. Um, but again, you know, it, to me, it was just the just the way it is. That's just life, and you can you just got to roll with it, or you might as well shrivel up and go away. Um, and so, you know, my five years, and then Whitaker's offered to offered me a job afterwards to come and join them, um, which was again, you know, not not something I'd anticipated, uh, and not something that was going to naturally flow. So I had a great time there, but it was a family owned run business with a number of senior managers who weren't family, um, but a small top team, okay? So where do you fit in a graduate management trainee or anybody, they've never had anybody come from a, a university background in that sense. And it, it was, what what do we do here? And the managing director who became a great family friend, um, I'm missing this day, he, um, <laughs> I was traveling around the States after my degree and he was going, him and his wife, Joan, were going to a uh, a conference, a bunkering conference in New Orleans. And he said, look, we'll meet up and have a beer and we'll talk about, you know, an opportunity to join a company if there is one. So I went and met him and a very direct um, East Ridings guy. And he said, right, we've got three positions. We want a technical director. He said, you're not qualified for that because you don't, you're not, a, you're not a chief engineer. You don't have any technical knowledge to that extent no that's not for you he said we need a uh, a senior operations manager he said we're looking for a master mariner and um no you're not qualified for that he said and we're also looking for a commercial director and he said but in fairness you you don't have enough experience for that he said but i think you should put your cv in anyway apply anyway <laughs> so <laughs> so anyway i think when finished having a drink parted ways Got back from the states, wrote in, uh, applying against the 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 the, uh, the job advert. Got my interviews, had my interviews, and they offered me a job, as and it was as what they call it, graduate management trainee or or some title. But they didn't employ a commercial director. Okay. Um. So I sort of went into this role, which I guess would have been to learn the ropes and grow into the role. Mm-hmm. Um. I didn't stay with them too long after that. It, it probably, probably didn't work um, in the way that they thought it would, in the way that I thought it would. Um, and so I left and I went down. I got a job in London as a marine fuels trader. Okay. Again, totally unplanned. Didn't expect to leave Whittaker's. Thought I'd be there for the whole of my life sort of thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I come from an era where staying in a job Staying with one company for twenty years was not was was the norm. Yeah. Okay, we didn't yeah. bounce around and work our way up the management levels um, back then. You went, you got a good job with a good company. They took care of you. You worked your nuts off, and it was a very good mutual relationship. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I ended up in London as a marine fuels trader. That is buying and selling marine fuels to sell to ships. So I buy it from a physical supplier. I put a margin on it to take into account the credit risk and then I flog it to the ship owner, right? In very simple terms. I might be a bit reductive there, but you know, that that's largely what it was about. And it and hadn't planned it. It what the trading itself wasn't super interesting. And I I wasn't a London boy. You know, I'd I'd never 
all my all my friends who wanted to work in London shot down to London the moment they graduated. Right? Sure. They got jobs in the accountancy firms, law firms, and marketing, and but they always wanted to be in London. For me, not so much. I I I prefer to be in different places. And when I was at Whitakers, I worked in Hull, worked in their Liverpool, uh, Runcorn office, worked in Southampton. Um, I say, growing up in Wolverhampton, my dad's factories were in in Bridge North and Wales, and I was very comfortable not being in London. I didn't feel that I need to be in London to make money to make a life for myself. So I found myself in London, not making enough money to live. <laughs> It was incredibly expensive and I wasn't on those sort of oil trader, big global oil trader type wages. Mm. Um, and to be honest, there wasn't too much that went wrong. And and I I like fixing problems. I've realized that. I, I like I like fixing stuff. I like something happening and then getting in there and getting my sleeves rolled up and dealing with it. And there wasn't there wasn't any of that really in my job. So <laughs> Again, utterly unplanned. One of the companies who I used to talk to on a daily basis were the credit reporting agency that we used for some of our credit checking before we sold, agreed to sell oil to ship owners for their ships. Mm. And um, I'd struck up a relationship with uh, a guy called Joe Corliss, who is now and has been for 20 years at Great Page, my business partner. And, okay. and we met. It, we we met and chatted back in the mid nineties. He was he'd moved to MRC from a um, an investigations group, which was run by the uh, International Chambers of Commerce, um, called the International Maritime Bureau, and he'd been their regional investigator in Kuala Lumpur. And he told me all this right, and I said, "Wow, God, that's you know, check piracy, maritime crime, arresting ships, working with admiralty marshals." The Admiralty Marshall bit got me. I genuinely thought it was like a Texas Ranger, right? <laughs> People paid to go in, sort out major problems in the shipping industry as a result of crime and negligence and just bad behavior. Flash your badge. I'm an Admiralty Marshall. I am here to save the day. What I didn't realize, of course, Admiralty Marshals are a court appointment. They're generally a lawyer and they work on behalf of the court. And they're the people that go down and arrest this, take the warrant from the court and go arrest the ship. But it didn't matter because Joe's job sounded fascinating, yeah. right? It was yeah. just absolutely fascinating. My job was not fascinating. He used to sit at his desk in the summers in a pair of shorts when he was in the UK having an ice cream. I used to sit at my desk in the very hot summer of 97 and the hot spring in a pinstripe suit and the full city rig on thinking, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. I've, I've had a long-standing um, relationship with Oxford. My mom studied here. Uh, I had a girlfriend back in the day who was studying here. You spend a lot of time in Oxford. And, and I thought, what, what a great place to work. Just how cool would that be? I mean, A, you're investigating and you're charging all over the world and fighting pirates and all that sort of stuff. And then one day, Joe said, well, we're looking for another investigator. What do you do? What do you, you know, do you fancy okay. it? Yeah. Um, and uh, I said, well, yeah, yeah, why not? That sounds absolutely brilliant. He said, well, come up for an interview. We'll chat about it uh, uh -huh. with, the, with, the, with the directors of the company. Um, I came up for an interview. Well, I think we had a cup of tea outside Brattle. There was a cafe outside next door to Brown's. I can't remember its name now, but it had some had some um, chairs and tables outside. We sat and had a cup of tea. Um, 
we had a good chat. Joe and I have enormous amounts in common. He did his maritime degree at, at Plymouth. They offered me the job. It was a no-brainer, and I fell into it. I fell into invest maritime investigations in almost the same lackadaisical way that I fell into shipping via my degree. No mm-hmm. plan, just roll with it. When opportunities, opportunities open themselves up, if they're interesting enough, say yes. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. That was I joined them in the August '97, early August '97. Been in the game since then. Okay. So, so far, far forward a bit then. Yeah. Because um, you now obviously have your own business in Grey Page. Yeah. You set that up. Yeah. You founded that. Was was that planned? To have no. your own your own business, so so it wasn't so that 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 because you talk to some people and that entrepreneur you know that entrepreneur is always there, that spirit's always been there and they've they're always working towards that. Um, others have sort of spotted opportunities when they're working for for bigger firms, like you were, but that wasn't planned either. To start to start the business, not at all. I mean, my personal view is that. People, you only ever hear about the successes and then people stand up on stage and they overblow how awesome they've been and what a great ride it's been. And we spotted this opportunity and, you know, it's always deep down inside me. I've had this entrepreneurial spirit yeah, yeah. and I reckon 98% of that is bullshit. That okay. is literally post-rationalizing the journey they've been on and, and discounting any of the luck or chances, serendipity, or anything that happened to them on the way that was positive, but nothing to do with them, right? Uh-huh. Okay. It was not planned at all. I mean, four weeks after I joined MRC, we were all brought down into on, onto one of the office floors because big open plan working uh, for many of the analysts. Our, our office in the investigations, only a few, there's only four of us, five of us, we're, we're upstairs in our own little hutch and we brought down and was big announcement the company's been sold to lloyds what it was lloyds of london press group which had been a management buyout from the lloyd lloyds of london insurance market they were the publishing division of lloyds insurance market and they published amongst others the august lloyds list which was the shipping the shipping daily newspaper everybody got lloyds list and it came out of the coffee house era hundreds of years ago when people needed to know where ships were going what ports they were calling at what they departed from news attached to all of that some adverts lloyd's list was a huge huge thing back in in the 90s i used to read it every day um when i when i was at uni and in, in work, working it, it, with whittakers and and with maxcom and uh like, okay so we've been bought by this company fine you go go back upstairs, get on, get on with work. Not sure how it's going to affect us, and all the, you know the new owners they come in and tell you all these wonderful things. How it's been great for you, and you just nod and smile and think can do nothing to affect this. So we, so from going from a very small, privately owned, quite a casual approach to work. I mean, in a really good way. Mm. We're all of a sudden inside this huge PLC organ that had gone to right monthly reporting. Every you know, real detailed bureaucratic administrative management, and we were trying to do our day job and getting buffeted around inside of you know to deal with all the PLC stuff that comes with part of being a PLC. 
Not unusually, they wanted to do some rationalization, i.e. they wanted to lose some heads because that was happening in group and there was overlap and redundancy. They came into MRC, there was that earnout element and profitability question mark. And, uh, and so we went through over that six years, maybe one or two iterations of redundancies um, in, in the teams. Fortunately, it never affected investigations because we were too small. And, and then we had a very large walkout of the analyst body. They, they just left one. I mean, I, I came back from lunch. MD called me and went, get in my office now. We need to chat. Said, and Joe was in there because he was ops director. And and he said, um, yeah, uh, like 20 odd people have walked out. They've got wow. notice in. Um, and that was a bit of a shock. Uh, and we tried to deal with that. Uh, so we're quickly hiring new people to become analysts. And my team were chipping into credit and assets. It was the biggest part of the business uh, financially. Um, and uh, so, so it rolled on. And I ended up as the managing director of MRC investigations. And I'd got a, I'd already started, while I was there, I started a, a large cargo crime investigations team in the United States. I'd acquired a, a risk consulting come loss prevention team. Uh, I say they acquired them, didn't buy them. They were being made redundant from a, a, a cargo insurer in, in Chicago. So we set them up as a division of us and had a really cool business running out there. Um, mm. So there were lots of good things going on in my team, in my area. But within the broader context of the PLC, it just didn't seem to fit or jive or work. Um, and then one day I had... I. I was I was a bit fed up, right, before we left, but that just happens. Okay. But I, I wasn't looking for promotion. I wasn't trying to climb a greasy pole. I just wanted to do our job and have fun doing it. And then one day I got into work about half seven, beautiful summer's morning, and the HR person was in. She came up to me on the stairs. What's going on? They made the IT. We had a local IT team. They made them redundant. Well, I was screaming at me and I just thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. I said, it, it's just, I just couldn't do it. Right. So I, at that point, I rang up the boss in London, told him I was leaving. I'd got a few days holiday. So I'd, I'd, I'd actually put it in writing. But as of that day, I was leaving. Mm-hmm. And that was that. And, and but I knew in myself I'd reached. I was okay with that. I, well, I wasn't upset about leaving. It was a relief. It was like, oh, okay, I'm done. Right, I can't do any more here. It's not good for me. And um, I went off and had a few days holiday. And I thought, um, well, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go back to work. Work. I'm not going to go back to business. I, I've been working since. Well, since I was a teenager, because I used to work on the shop floor at my dad's factory and all the way through university, then Whittaker, then Maxcon, then him. I thought, I'm going to have some time off. I'm going to go and be a dive guide in Sharmil Sheikh in the Red Sea. Fancy that. Oh, wow. Okay. Absolutely. Why not? A couple of yeah. years dicking around on a dive boat and leading dives <laughs> on some of the best diving in the world. I mean, it was Jacques Cousteau. His favourite reef in the world is Ras Mohammed. And it is an incredible place that I've thought, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. I've got no rush. I'm I'm not short of a few quid. I've got no I've got no dependence. I wasn't married. I had no kids and no girlfriend. I told Joe, because he was back working with us in the investigation team, I said, I'm I've I've put my cards in. Yeah. And 
He said, well, I'm not staying then. Um, really? And, and my whole team were like, well, no, we don't, we don't want to do this um, without you. I said, well, I'm okay. That's up to you, but I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and it took a few days. I had lots of conversation with group because all sorts of senior directors were calling me to ask what was going on, why I was leaving. And um, it took a couple of weeks, but after talking to Joe a lot, my dad, some of the team, there's like this energy about, well, do it for yourself. Why don't you guys do it for yourselves? This is the, they're your book of business. You know your clients, you know what you're doing. And so we had to get over two hurdles. Could we do it? Like, did we actually believe in ourselves? Can we actually deliver on this? And then that becomes the should we do it? You know, should we do it? Is there something better to do? Are you better off staying where you are, gang? It's my decision. I haven't asked you about it before I left. I just, I'm just leaving. But the momentum built, and 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 that was the decision I made. And then, um, yeah, we founded Grey Page in the fall. Mm-hmm. And that was 20 years ago. And they say, as they say, the rest is history. The, so you you um, drastically underplay yourself, I think. And it's to run a 20-year business like that, to bring it through to today and to start it and, and build it from the ground up is is a big deal, which, uh, whichever way you look at it. And I know you, you won't say that because you don't. You don't push yourself and you don't talk about yourself, but it but it is. You mentioned there that there were there were two hurdles and and one of them was could we do this? And and I wanted to ask you and this is perhaps slightly cliche, but but I like it because I always get such different answers from people. But um I wanted to ask you about the challenges that that you faced in, in both setting up Grey Page and then continue continuing to run it day to day. Um with Presumably those challenges were at that could we do this stage and, and they have continued throughout. Maybe they've changed, but mm-hmm. were they were they operational or were they to do with, with the industry that you were in and, and the pace and the complexity with, with which you have to operate? Or is it a mix of both? What did those challenges look like? The can we do this question, mm-hmm. should we do this question, those two flip sides of the same coin are incredibly important. We'd always work for other people. Mm. Right. So none of us have got any experience of doing it without the safety net of a bigger group. Right. Or or somebody else making the final decision or somebody else's money. OK. So it was like, well, what, what does that look like? What are we offering? We knew what we could do. And we knew there were people buying what we could do already when we were at MRC. So. Heuristically, like rule of thumb, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to want us to do it somewhere else, whether it's for under our own banner or under somebody else's banner. Relatively speaking, we were the only people doing what we did. Okay, right, we really were the uh, pretty much the only team in the round doing what we did. There were other people that did some of it, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but you know, we we were pretty well founded about what we did. So. Do we have a market? Will they pay the money? Can we deliver the services? You know, going through what what do we have now? What do we need? One of the things we looked at was financing. How much money do we need to set this up? Do we go borrow it? Um, 
do we find can we finance it ourselves what are the risks i think one of the one of the great cliches is that if you're going to fail fail quickly and and we were still pretty young mm -hmm. and we didn't borrow and we didn't we didn't mortgage properties we we looked at it and went well how much risk are we prepared to take mm. and we knew we had a pretty good business model so you we could have gone and mortgaged properties and what have you we could have we could have we could have bet it like that but we didn't we said well we'll just bet it with our own cash and we could afford to do that and we started with you know quite a lot of our own well all it was all our own money and there was a lot of it we pulled together just me and joe and then joe's also one of our other uh, currently our other shareholder and uh, director and um and we pulled it together we got to work quickly we got work on board really quickly so we were cash positive in six months okay wow which is super important or was back yeah. then before tech valuations and people throwing money at businesses left right and center so um operationally well tech wasn't so advanced right it we we needed telephones good mm -hmm. cameras good recording equipment and some t your basic standard suite of pc software and there were only six of us when we started the company so six pcs six cameras six phones it wasn't a super amount of money it was big to us because it was all our money right so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we'd have had an investor lobbing a million quid at us it might have been a different paradigm but we didn't so we were careful with money but as i say we got work on board really really quickly because a lot of our clients hadn't got anywhere felt they didn't have anywhere else to go or maybe they just really trusted us to deliver on the casework they were putting our way Bringing in other people in the early stages was a risk. Who mm -hmm. are they? How much do we trust them? Can we afford it? Will they deliver like we deliver? Will they feel about the business the way that we feel about the business? And the other thing is that I think particularly for Joe and I, we we cared as much about what we did before we started Grey Page as we do now we have great page we always had that work ethic we always had that we will just make the best job of this that we can it doesn't yeah. matter that we weren't shareholders in the previous company it was about us it was our names on our cards and delivering you know the clients weren't going to blame informer they were going to blame us if it all went to shit okay so we had that work ethic we work hours and i mean in at seven out of ten that was a regular day for us mm -hmm. So it's like, are we going to be able to hire, find and hire people who feel the same way about Page without being in the equity of Page? Because we weren't about to give away our equity the moment we started up and dilute ourselves. That just didn't make any sense. We could have kept it smaller. So we so we went through that. And then as you grow, it, it, it's, it's the questions that most small businesses or large businesses have. When is the right time to, when have you outgrown your office? Do you take an office that's just a little bit bigger than you've got now, or do you take a big one in the anticipation over the next 18 months, 24 months, you're going to fill it? You know, it, it's those gambles or educated yeah. guesses that you have to take in business. And that, But we never had any fundamental operational challenges that we didn't think we could surmount. We, the first year and a half was really hard work, really tough and really edgy. Even though we were cash positive, we weren't kicking off money left, right and centre. And I would say in the first year and a half, that was the crunch point. 
something changed in the business. We won a very large multi-year contract. And Badoo, that that was a real inflection point. That really propelled the business to the next level. We had another one of those uh, in about 2008. Um, and there were been various issues in the maritime environment. Somali piracy, for example. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of piracy work in Asia before that over the years. So the Somali piracy issue was a thing that we knew about. And we got a lot of work in that area. We got a lot of work about in piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. That was for insurers and for cargo interests. And then they asked us to look at all sorts of other marine insurance related problems of very large sizes, particularly when it comes to cargo, you know, 20, 30, 40, $500 million problems. And the business has evolved. So it's been, our challenges have been really to keep up with that evolution, let that evolution play out, have confidence we can deliver on it mm-hmm. and, and go with it. it. It's very easy in a business to sit tight. No, yeah. we're not going to go. No, I know, I know we could, but we, no, we, we're not. We're not reckless. We weren't taking bonkers risks, but we were taking a risk because you never know how it's going to play out. You just got to think intuitively. It's probably this looks like it's going in that direction. It's working for us. We're getting good reputation, good feedback from clients. We're, we're solving problems. You know, whether it's saving people money or whatever. You know, getting ships back from pirates or finding cargoes that have been stolen or whatever they are. When you get good results out of your business, the feedback loop is very obvious. You're doing really well. Carry on. Just keep going. Push yourselves a little bit. Let your clients lead you to where they want to go with their work. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do the work, say no. If you do, do it and charge them properly for doing it, right? So the, the challenges weren't any different to any other company per se in, in their fundamentals. I think what becomes challenging in a, as the team grows and becomes a bigger company is taking everyone with you and them all, everyone having the same confidence that you can lead it through and deliver on it for the company as well as deliver on it for the clients. And 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 we have done that. I mean, we we we're a twenty year overnight success, as James Dyson once said. <laughs> uh, you know, we we we've obviously done that because we wouldn't be in business now. And and I was checking on the um, I was checking on the team longevity the other day, and I think there's only one person who hasn't a, a new starter, <laughs> someone that joined us recently. Everybody's been here at least nine years. Well. Wow. That's a lot of confidence and faith yeah. in the team placing us who run the business. It's also a lot of confidence and faith we place in them. But we clearly have got something right to have great team yeah. being with us for ages, great clients who've been with us for ages in a 20-year business that has been profitable f- for 20 years. Can I come back to the that retention piece because my, my next question for you was going to be about what what you would say to someone who is um perhaps 20 years behind you in, in, a, in a business timeline and thinking about setting out and doing their own thing what you know what would be your advice from from what you've you've grown and what you've done yourself but that i, I think that retention piece in terms of employees and getting the right people mm. is is quite a good message there i mean if just from talking to people on this podcast whether it's organizing the commonwealth games or 
founding um, uh, founding a charity or a nonprofit or yourself founding what you founded pe- people and getting the right people at the start and keeping them on board and aligned with the vision and where you're going with things and having that confidence like you mentioned to back it seems so important and and so vital how how do you do that do you know is is it a case of getting the right people at the start is it ongoing messaging and affirming of uh, a vision and a direction and, and keeping that front and center a combination of those things presumably because you must you've got the right people at the start presumably if that attrition rate is so low yeah i mean we've had people come and go okay the company's been a lot bigger than it in numbers in headcount terms now uh, than it is now um and so we've been through that evolution as well can we go out by adding headcount and we've learned our lessons from that but I think you've got to start with a core of people who are capable and you can trust each other. You can't constantly be um, second guessing each other when you're trying to start a business. And there's no trust there if you're second guessing each other. Someone has got to be in charge. The buck has got to stop with someone because there's always going to be a really difficult decision that needs to be made. And committees where everybody's got the same level of responsibility are really crap at making really difficult decisions. Because if it just falls on one person and one person has to pull the trigger, as long as they're capable of pulling the trigger when it needs to be, then you've got a leader in the business who can do that, right? If you don't think you've got enough people around you who know what they're doing, let's say you st- a lot of companies start, for example, without any marketing experience in, in the business. And yet mark, all companies are shot through with marketing, whether they realize it or not. I, I hear this all the time. Oh, we don't do marketing. And we they, what they mean is they don't advertise. I mean, they, this is the this is the idiocy of those sorts of comments. We don't do marketing. Yeah, you do. You just don't even realize it. That's mm-hmm. the difference. Yeah. I mean, like saying we don't do accounting. Well, no, but you keep books and you've got a PL on the balance sheets. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Oh, what about innovation? Yeah. Okay. So I'd say if you need help in the early stages, go find people who really know what they're doing and ask them to help. They don't have to be full-time. They don't even have to be employees. They can be advisors. Just find some way to thank them for their help if it's not remuneration, okay? But you've got to have the right people to run your elements of your business, now, we were really lucky. We we didn't have the scope to employ a full-time finance director. So what we had was a bookkeeper, and we had the support of our accounting firm at the time. And they used to send in um, a, training, a trainee accountant, very good, like final year to be qualified, what have you, um, uh, accountant. And they used to come and do our P&L and books and all that sort of stuff. And But but Sally, our bookkeeper at the time, was really, really good, but we needed a bit more support. So we 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 drafted that in, okay? We we subcontracted that for the want of a better phrase, just like we did on IT. It didn't, couldn't afford to employ an IT team. So we found an IT team who would support us but they provided at the very beginning a really good bog standard outsource your IT management, any problems with your software, any problems with your hardware, it was great. Mm. Then we found a team we needed to work with more closely and we went we went with them. And they've been our IT team since and we're really, really close to them. They're on site regularly. We know them inside out. 
they were all from the black country and knew them before they started their own but they've evolved their business along with our business right Mm. um some of them used to work in my dad's business uh doing hardware software engineering and what have you for for my for my dad so we kind of like i knew they weren't going to let us down because we just got that we just got that connection so yeah you need you need to get you need to get people in then you've got to have a lot of energy all the time for your business Mm. and you've got to show people why you love your business it's not you can run an ad and you can hire people in and you sit them down and say, there's your job. And you let them get on with it and give them zero input, zero energy around them, zero involvement. They still do the job, but it's it's not buying, is it? It's not part of the team. <laughs> At the same time, you can't hire everybody into director level and have them be part of the decision-making process and everything. You, you've got to really understand what you're trying to achieve and who's going to help you achieve that. And that not everybody wants to be part of that decision-making process. And some people do. Some people want to be part of it and not capable of being part of it. You've got to manage that out through your daily work life and the evolution each year of, of, of the company. And um, I, think, I think retention comes by, for us, good packages right don't pay people peanuts and expect absolute legendary um performance out of them oxfordshire's not a cheap place to live (laughs) there's so many people that commute to london this is commuter belt we're competing etc with london and and what have you in the southeast so you you can't be tight on that you're grown up about your holidays if people say oh you know i'm i'm knackered i've just got back from the yemen I'm not going to come into the office tomorrow. I need a, I need a day to decompress. You've got, well, you can't smash them over the head and oh, you've got a report to write. No, it's like, yeah, dude, you know what you're doing. You know what you need. So it's like treating people like adults that they are. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that we want to treat them as adults, we expect them to be adults in the business. Mm-hmm. Keep the politics out of it. You know, and all the petty nonsense that you get in bigger companies, the water cooler conversation, being bitching and gossiping and all that sort of stuff. No, we're all here to do a job. We're here to do a job for our clients, first and foremost. That's how we all get paid further down the chain, right? Clients pay a fee that runs the business and pays our wages and pensions and yada, yada, yada. So we all got to understand that. So we're all oriented to, to the client requirement. There are people who've been in Great Page who've employed who didn't get it and they left, either of their own volition or of ours. Mm-hmm. Everyone's here, I think, gets it. I think they like it. You know, when, when the pandemic came, we were used to working remotely, working either overseas remotely or being at home, working home remotely. If you've got a big report to write, sometimes being in the office is not the best place to write it. You just want the solace and silence of your own place. And so we... We're pretty relaxed about stuff. It doesn't mean we don't have standards. In fact, we have really high standards. It's just that we're, they're just there. They're just known and we're relaxed about everything else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that's been to our benefit. And I think that's why we've got a great team who's sharing the same values, the same standards. And we don't need a frigging handbook or a list of behavior or this or that compliance in some kind of notional enforcement role. Yeah. yeah. Every, we, we all know each other. We kind of recruited each other. Joe recruited me. 
Joe recruited somebody else. I recruited Al and Matt and, 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 and off you go, right? So there are people. We're yeah. all kind of, you know, somebody says, oh, she's one of us. He's one of us. We know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and so that's what we've been successful at, reasonably speaking. We've, we haven't got it right all the time by any means. I mean, nothing I'm going to say on this podcast is about us getting it right 100% of the time. But we don't learn so much by success as we do by failure. So, you know, we haven't got it right all the time. And we've learned great lessons from that. And we've developed and evolved on from that. And I'm sure we'll make mistakes in future. Who knows what the future holds. But that's what I would, that's what I'd say for anybody starting up a up a business. Um, yeah, it's so good. It's, um, there's a, there's a lot of similarities there, I think, with with um, how we approach things at, at White and Black, and certainly our clients and, and and similar businesses. There's there's so much truth in that, particularly around letting people be adults and and all of that management. What's what's interesting, James, for you though, is that you're you are managing all of that and and thinking about all of that clearly um, very deeply, as you've just articulated there. But you're also running the day to day. And you've got clients to service, and and so you effectively you're doing two jobs there, <laughs> and that's why I say at the start, it's it's big deal, starting a business like this and continuing it, and I, maybe we could um we could move on and and look at some of those specifics and and a bit more about the day to day and what you do at Grey Page, yeah. um, obviously the the, the maritime and um, investigation, security, intelligence, and um, industry and and. I'm fascinated to, to know more from your perspective about, I suppose, about the more general nature of, of global security right now. And, and I mean, we're, we're obviously a tech firm at White and Black, and we have a lot of clients who operate in in data and and in, in AI sectors, intelligence sectors. And, and I thought it would be particularly interesting to ask you, given your profession, about um the, the, the growth of, of data and, and, and tech within the in intelligence and, and security industries, maritime industries, obviously a huge growth area across all sectors. But perhaps you could unpack this a bit for us. To your mind, and I, and I realize this is a slight change of, of gear to what we've been talking about, but to your mind, what what role does does data play in the maritime security intelligence investigation landscape at the moment it's, it's certainly not a new pheno- phenomenon with it within the industry but you know you, you only have to have one eye on on the headlines to know that but is it now everything is it everything and i guess looking ahead if not now what what what's the future role of, of data in this sector in this industry where where do you see that going could you unpack that a bit for us i know there's there's, okay, I, I there's a few try. hours in there but maybe you could try and just unpack that a bit so we're going to have part two of the podcast <laughs> yeah, part three um yeah when i started investigations in 97 most data came from reference books and reference material and if there were databases there were dos prompt databases that we had in group so if you wanted to look at any reference for immediate reference for ownership of a ship, for example, we had what was called the Lloyd's Confidential Index, which was produced then by our acquirers at the time. 
Um, and it was used by the Lloyd's Market to make sure that when they were presented with a ship as a risk for hull insurance, they could actually identify what kind of ship it was, who owned it, and, and cross corroborate what you know, corroborate what the what brokers were presenting as the risk. And um, you know, we're talking the days. I think we said earlier where you had a phone, a mobile phone, you had an MP3 player, and you had a camera, and they weren't all one device. They were three separate devices. Yeah. So the world has rapidly changed um, since 97. When we first using the internet was Yahoo, <laughs> and we're on modems. I mean, we're, on, we're light years away from that. The great thing about the internet is that you can kind of research up anything. It might not tell you the truth, tell you actual factual answers, but you can go, you can go hunt the internet, and you can find videos on stuff that you never, that just you just never know about before, right? You could, I could fix my dishwasher by following a video on YouTube. I'm not quite sure you could. There's a YouTube channel for ship arrest or corporate investigations or asset tracing, what have you, but. There's so much more information out there. And I think this is the point about data, Mm. the first starting point about data. To me, data is the new word for information. Right. It's almost like the accountants and the economists and the mathematicians have taken over. We don't like the word information. That's just a bit dull. So we're going to call it data because it's more Star Trek and cool. (laughs) and it's it's just information, right? Data doesn't necessarily mean it's factual. I, I think that I think that's one of the problems with using the term data is somehow it's credible, verifiable, factual. It must be right because it's the data. What does the data say on this? Mm-hmm. That well, if the if the data is wrong and it's a poor source and you don't understand it, I don't care what the data says on this, right? If you said what information have we got around this topic, it gives you a broader scope for exploration. So data in our industry is is the thing, like every industry, insure tech, fintech, people have gone down the route of computers and AI. They think, or I guess the proposition is that it's going to be more cost effective or it's quicker. But I found a <laughs> found a great quote the other. Day. I saw a great quote the other day. It was two um, advertising legends talking. David Abbott, who founded, um, uh, was an advertising agency head, and another guy called Dave Trot. David Abbott was talking to Dave Trot, and he said, "Shit delivered at the speed of light is still shit." <laughs> so this is the thing about data. Just because it's quick, it doesn't make it great. Yeah, you know, I can flick a button. I just press a button, and I've got the answer. If life was as simple as that, if the world was as simple as that, then companies like Greypage wouldn't exist. And I think we have to take that. That is the context in which businesses like ours and bigger corporate investigation groups, because obviously we, we're a small uh, investigation intelligence group, and there are much bigger ones doing all sorts, working in all sorts of sectors. but. No, data isn't everything. Data is information, and information is the starting point when you're faced with a question. 
I need to know what happened. I need to know when it happened. I need to know why it happened. I need what the hell's going on. You know, we've got this massive problem, massive crisis. Whatever it is, that's your question. My question is, what's your problem? What's your problem? What do you need help with? What are we trying to answer here? What what are we trying to bottom out? How do we do that? We look at the question long and hard. Have you identified the problem correctly? Imagine going into the doctors, being misdiagnosed and being treated for five years for something you haven't got. That, that's that's the corollary, right? So you, you've got to get the diagnosis right, which means challenging the question. And to challenge the question, you've got to have some information around that for contextual purposes, whether that's our own experience. A lot of our people are second career professionals, master mariners, cargo traders, uh, commodity traders, finance, insurance, the law. We're all bringing some experience to the table before we've opened a case file. And, and, you know, if it's something to do with oil, you know, it's not a bad idea to give me a look over it because while I've not been in the oil business for a while, the basics still are pretty useful. So we use information to build the context to understand the question. We don't just immediately snap to an answer because that's knee jerk uh, and it doesn't help us. The chance of us getting the right answer at the outset, within about three minutes of hearing somebody's problem, is ridiculous. It, it just it just doesn't happen. Either they don't have a problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it was such a simple problem they should have just Googled it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so we talk about data driven intelligence. The the interesting developments in in our world in security intelligence in this greater contested environment we're all living in nowadays where people can just shout at you on social media to their heart's content and spew out any old guff that they want and people believe them that's what i mean by contested not just war fighting and the the geopolitical tensions around the world but the whole world just seems to be more contested i disagree i have an opinion therefore my opinion is more valid or i'm more right or it's my truth my lived experience we want to get down to facts facts that resolve problems so people gone down the route of data because it sounds cool it's great to have a computer and there's generations that are following us on we appreciate you know 30s 20s teenagers they they're just they're tech mad it's just part of their lives they don't have a different lens to look at the world through it's what they've grown up with you know i I can't my kids could not imagine a time without an iphone or a smartphone or other brands are available but you know phones computers ipads just rattling away off they go imagine a world where you had to go and look that up in a library (laughs) it it just seems so odd you might as well be talking about the middle ages really in in terms of difference of of life and and inputs and context there are i i we like tech because it helps We, we don't want a single solution We don't trust a single source in investigations and intelligence. We need to be able to corroborate. We need need to be able to check and analyze and assess. It isn't a binary, here's my question, what's my answer? Flick a switch, there you go, type world. And And that's not our type of business. Our questions are usually multi-layered, incredibly complex, and we have to dig at the truth 
behind the question a lot before we can get to an answer. So yes, data is incredibly helpful. Big data is great as long as you know what you're asking of it. I mean, I've got friends who work in Formula One. I, I was chatting to one, one great mate um, a couple of years ago. And he said, oh, big data. I said, what, what do you think about big data? He said, well, we have big data, that's just volume data, right? It, it's a new fashionable term. He said, but I, I think they've got something like a 1,000 or 1,500 sensors on any one of the cars, giving them a feedback every third, every 0.3 of a second. Big data is just data at scale, at volume. You can have as much big data as you want, but if you don't know what you're looking for or what you're asking of it, what's it going to tell you? That's what I, I fear, mm. that people just use it ignorantly. We've seen a lot of data, particularly when it's algorithmically analysed, produce a lot of rubbish. Mm -hmm. We know it's factually wrong because we can compare it with all of our other sources. And our other sources could be... Um, human in i mean talking to people knowing their business having physically seen what's going on on the ground i don't think anybody has invented a better sensor than the human being our eyes yes, our ears our brains so this was my next this was my my next question is where, where is that there's an overlap here then because i think we've as society we've 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 realized that actually Big data, AI, machine learning, however you frame it, it's it's only as good as what you put in. But also there is, and particularly relevant to, to your industry, there is reasoning, there are nuances, there's a human experience and understanding that this machines just cannot replicate. And for an industry like yours, that is so important. So, so is there a crossover here whereby you have whether you call it a hybrid, I, I don't know, but there is there is a, a data-driven intelligence that is um, at a nexus with human intelligence, and there's a relationship there. So presumably for you, there, there are some uses for for big data, for automation, for for AI. There are there are tasks and elements of of the work that you do that that could be um, automated, or, or or that process could be made much slicker, and yet as you just said, without that human experience and input reasoning, nuance, it, it is useless. So what does that interaction look like now? Is it still something that, that we're working out? That you're working out? I, in, in I mean, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as say the data is useless. It's just very one-dimensional. On its own, um, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, yeah. And we're, so we're, we're looking, you've got to understand, I think to be, to have, to be really good at what we do, you need to be able to understand complex systems really well. And you you can't be so certain and so wedded because it is your algorithm and it is your data and data you've collected and your machines are infallible. That's so dangerous. We have to question, 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 cross-check, cross-check. Are we sure? How sure are we? And it is a reasonable answer in our world to give to someone, I don't know. Mm. I still don't know. We're not there yet. So we have to be patient. It's definitely not a data-driven or human intel-driven 
well it's not it's not either or it's a blend everything's a blend so now that we have access publicly to satellite imagery now that we can task satellites as well if we want persistent imaging over a certain area yes it costs an absolute fortune at the moment but it can be done the these were the preserves of uh, nation state intelligence and military organizations at one stage it's become more democratized they call a lot of it open source intelligence you see this OSINT OSINT if you look on Twitter LinkedIn any of the social media platforms you see OSINT delivered this Bellingcat what an incredible organization hugely dispersed very democratic OSINT investigations lots of people not being paid by Bellingcat for the want of a better phrase it's just people who are really fascinated by imagery or using Google Earth and see photographs off the off the internet. We found this picture from a map of this church and that's how we could geolocate, i.e. put that person in that location. We know the location they're in because we found a photograph through the internet off that location. And that's open source. We haven't had to pay for it. We haven't had to go out and develop a model to collect it particularly. We Googled it using some tools and some more sophisticated techniques, but we found it. The geospatial intelligence, layering data, maps, satellite imagery, OSINT, that's become a new thing over the last 10 years outside of government uh, agencies and, and military organisations. So we've, we've seen a lot of the tools, techniques and understanding and, and models that are that have been developed as they often are inside nation states become coming into the private sector, becoming more democratised and available to use. Um, and, and so we have kept up with that. We've had to keep up with that. But what we haven't let go is that we are a people business. It is about who we know and who we can access and what information we can get as a result of that. It's not an or, it's not, oh, we don't need that anymore. Because the things about human beings is in, in the world of data and information and computers, people are retaining a lot more to themselves that they don't want to put on their phone. They don't want to put on their computer. They don't want to show a pattern of life for the want of a better phrase. We've all got secrets. We've all got stories to tell. They're all in our heads. Our supercomputer brain retains huge amounts of information that we've collected through our eyes and ears. It, it, I wouldn't go as far as to say touch and smell, but you know what I mean? You say, oh, God, yeah. And now that you mention it, I saw that. I think I saw that when I was there. Yeah. And, and and then we can go and take that snippet of information and we can corroborate it and firm it up into evidence for the want of a better phrase. Now, we have been able to for years go and do a corporate search for a company in 150 odd countries in the world because they publish their corporate um, registry information like we do at Companies House. Now, in many locations, they don't give you anything more than the name of the company, the day that it, the date that it was founded, and that's in good standing. Okay, non-disclosure domiciles, we get that. The UK is a much more open disclosure domicile. You can get the name of the shareholders, the directors, get a set of accounts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We get that. There are lots of databases now providing information that we didn't have access to twenty years ago. So again, a big data, but you've got to know what you want from it. You've got to know what questions to ask from it. I don't know whether I invented this phrase or I heard it. Trying to get intelligence and useful information out of big data is like, like trying to sit water from a fire hose. 
You know, just turn it on, bosh, in your face. Overwhelmed, don't know what I... It won't tell you anything unless you know what you want to ask it. That's the crucial thing about big data. We've just been trying looking for some imagery over, over Brazil, and we've got lots, there's lots and lots of satellite imagery out there, but unfortunately, it's not, it, it's really cloudy. Where we're looking, the images are mostly of cloud. We can't get a clear view of what we're meant, to, what we want to be looking at because of where it is in the world. You know, you try taking, you try getting satellite imagery over rainforests. Um, it's going to, you're rarely going to get a clear day, a clear shot when the satellite's passing. So there's no point just going and buying 90 days worth of imagery and hoping it shows you. You've got to understand the area that you're imaging. That's just about tradecraft. And I, and I think the one thing, people really underestimate the power of human, human intelligence tradecraft. I think they do that because it's difficult. It takes years to learn and understand and refine. If you're not a people person, <laughs> what, what, what are you going to base your tradecraft on? So it's not for everybody. You've got to be a little bit chameleon-like. You've got to be able to get on with everybody. We're not trying to make enemies out of what we do. We're trying to make friends because friends then become eyes and ears out on the street for us. It's it, it's it's harder. It's less fashionable. It's really, really useful if you can do it well. It's incredibly useful if you can do it well, super valuable. But because it's not potentially fashionable, because of geospatial link, just because of OSINT, because of imagery, because of big data, because of AI, blockchain, and all the other bullshit that people are just spouting left, right, center, it gets dropped down the pecking order, underplayed, understated, undervalued and, and i think it's a massive shame because it needs to be in a in a bigger ecosystem the word you're looking for blended or or what do you say um fusion yeah you fuse all your information sources whether that's off the internet off imagery geospatial layering open source intelligence human intelligence when you start to fuse it all together you yeah. get great or you get much better granularity, better intelligence pictures. If you think one source alone or one feed of is, is going to do the job, you don't understand intelligence and how to do it. Just like investigations, you don't understand what you're looking at. If you think, you, oh, I went to this bloke, he gave me the full story, I'm happy, report filed. You don't know what you're doing if you do that. Yeah. Oh, that is it's fascinating. I, I think we could... Um... We could talk for hours on this, and actually, I don't think that that's that's not um, as much as it is specific to your industry. The principle applies, and I'm thinking about that in a legal context as well, and the the tech and the AI that is is driving big law and chatbot customer service and you know contracts written by machines and all that kind of thing. That human experience and that tradecraft that you talk about. It's just so invaluable, you know, in our industry as well. And to churn out, to churn out a contract um, using a machine compared to somebody who's been in in the trade for forty years and knows your business and and knows the ins and outs and the nuances. There's just no, there's no competition. There are some things that will save time and that will cut a lot of the the admin and and trim a lot of the fat. But that tradecraft piece is so important for for your sector, for our sector, and, and I think for for so many now, for really for any sector trying to integrate um, 
this this world of of big data and tech moving forward i think that's that's um so so pertinent for for all sectors so absolutely i i, I think that um we're forgetting the value of human experience there is yeah. no substitute for experience i've been there i saw it i did it i got the t-shirt that is hugely valuable now it doesn't make me right it just means i have some experience of it before that i can apply this time round you know i i i can draft a contract i'm not a lawyer but i can draft a contract but I'm going to run it by you guys just to check. This is the relationship we have. I mean, great friends at, 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 at your firm. And it works on that basis. I basically do the drafting. A lot of it's boilerplate. Absolutely, I'm all over the purpose. What's the purpose of this contract? Then you guys are great at checking it, picking out, oh, by the way, that term, that's changed now. The law's been updated on this, that, and the other. Stuff I'm I'm not expert or experienced in, but it's all about people. Why do we come to you? Because we trust the partners that we work with at White and Black. Mm. We can rely on what they say because they're experienced, and we have experience of working with them. That is service-to-service, business-to-business relationship. We're not selling a product to our consumer. It's not B2C, it's not shampoo. So if it's interpersonal business, it's got to be a people business. I, that was thrown at me the other day by another, oh, you're just a people business. So yeah, yeah, we're just a people business. What what is that? Of course we're a people business. That's something we're proud of. It's not a diminution of what we do. We are absolutely a people business, which means I have access in places you could only dream of because yeah. you can't get in there with your tech unless they're going to let you put a range of sensors on the ground that they're not going to let you put on the ground and i mean it, it, it is frightening that there seems to be this argument that's a complete specious argument between tech and non-tech mm-hmm. it, we all work in an ecosystem together and you're absolutely right i mean i would never I'd be, I'd be, if, if I saw anything that I thought would come from chatbot from a law firm, it'd be the last time I ever worked for that law firm. We I just had, had a document in the other day, a translation of something, a translation of, of, of a letter, and it genuinely had been just translated using Google Translate. And we know that because it reads, it's weird, right? It's, yeah. There's no yeah, idiom yeah, in yeah. there. There's no, there's no English idiom in there. It doesn't, it doesn't match. And, and actually, when you start to put the letter into Google Translate yourself, it, it translates it into the English translation. Now, that's what you're going to get through chatbot. Basically, you're going to get quite a lot of bollocks. Uh, it's and, a great analogy. Is that not a great analogy of the why, of what we've been talking about? More, yeah. more broadly, it's a Google Translate version, isn't it? It will be without about the human six, experience. It will be a Google Translate yeah, version. Six, 60, 65% of the way to what you need, you get some understanding out of it, but. Poof, the yeah. problem is the devil, the problematic elements are all in the 30 to 40% you're not getting. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you, 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 yeah, you mean serious, serious problems, serious trouble if you, if you misinterpret it. And this is the thing, right? Data information is the what. If you want to know the why, why him, why her, why next, who next, why now, why this, why that, from data, you have to infer, because it can only tell you the what. 
So you, you can draw your inferences as to why, but their assumptions. And this idea of prediction is super dangerous because none of us can predict the future. Nobody predicted. Nobody was shouting at, at, at length and out loud about COVID pandemic, right? Coming. So we're having a massive inquiry now. If we were that bloody predictive and great at predicting stuff, we would have predicted a whole load of things over the years. We don't. We don't know what the future is going to hold. So let's not bullshit ourselves that somehow all this tech and data is going to be usefully predictive. If it's predictive in the wrong direction, we're all dead. I'd rather be sceptical, even cynical about data until I can bottom it out and I'm happy with what it, what I, what I can understand from it. You know, we, we've learned as human beings over three million years to survive heuristically, rules of thumb. So my mate ate that berry. He didn't die eating that berry. It's probably safe for me to eat that berry. It's even it's rule of thumbs. I don't need 5,000 data points to tell me whether a strawberry is safe to eat because I'm watching 40 other people in my tribe eat strawberries and they're not all dropping down dead. If I had 5,000 data points that told me that the strawberries were unsafe to eat, but it was the only crop available, at a, we're all going to starve because the data's wrong, because it's on the wrong premise. The model is wrong. Do you see? So that's, mm, that's, yeah. that's, that's my point. And it is reductive. I know it's incredibly complicated. Or what I'm trying to explain is way more nuanced and complicated than I am putting it into terms. But ultimately, you have to boil it down to, to, to consume it and to digest it. Um, and so the problem with data as well is over optimization. We just believe the data, we're going to follow the data. We can blame the data. Well, it, it, it's what the model told me, is it? But what about what you thought? Mm. You've just killed everyone because of your model. I mean, I would argue potentially we crashed the British economy because of our modeling on the physical health and what have you benefits, uh, downsides, upsides, what have you, of COVID uh, pandemic. We looked at it and went, oh my God. Ah, and, and nobody understood what they were looking at. We relied so much on the data and what the scientists were saying about the data. We took decisions in the rest of our lives without any data. And it, it's horrific. The outcome at the moment is horrific economically. Uh, and, and so being driven by data is great if the data's right and if you can rely on it. If it's wrong, you're in deep shit. Yeah, James, I feel like that's um, I feel like that's the kind of starting point, but it's also incredibly thought-provoking place. I think to to wrap things up, that's that's been unbelievably insightful for me and very thought-provoking. Hopefully, the same for people listening. <laughs> um, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Oh, it's my us. pleasure. I've really it's, enjoyed it's been it. Really Sam. fascinating. Thank you so much, and. Uh, Maybe we can get get on for a part two and a part three in the future. Yeah, definitely. I'd be up for that. Now that I've done one, I'm sure Great. I could do another one with you. Maybe we can have a beer when we're doing it. Let's do it. We can do it in person. <laughs> Love to. Thanks so much, James. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sam.